Word to the Wise. We are an explicit podcast talking, tackling content with adult themes and whatnot. This month, we're talking about Brandon Sanderson's Tress of the Emerald Sea, and we'll undoubtedly touch on nearly everything up until the Lost Metal, excluding Stormlight, because I am a fresh-faced baby that has not read it yet. <laughs> Have now, the last episode I listened to of your podcast, you hadn't read The Emperor's Soul. That's that yes, so true as well. also hasn't read The Emperor's Soul, which okay. is what we were going to do about, originally here. Yeah. I just want to make sure I have all, all the books that I don't want to spoil for you. Have you read Warbreaker? Yes. Okay. Yes, I have read right. Warbreaker and Elantris. Otherwise, basically everything in the Mistborn series. Okay. Except for the very last set of chapters for the Lost Metal. Yeah, so the last like six chapters done. of the Lost Metal. Yeah. I'm still... Oh my gosh. We just, yeah, we did the penultimate episode last night. So he's got the finale yet for that, for this next week. But super close. That's I should awesome. have had you read that this morning. Just I to, should like, have. Had Instead, I read the brain. first 50 chapters of Tress again. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we'll, we'll get into that. Uh, welcome to Words and Whiskey Short Pours, a monthly podcast where we have a fun time discussing fictional worlds and the people that create them all while boozing just a little bit. My name is Cross. My name is PJ. And I'm Peter. And we are joined by Peter today, and it's so excited. We are here today to talk about the Cosmere and the first of the secret projects, Brandon Sanderson's Tress of the Emerald Sea. Peter, we're so excited to have you on the show. Yeah. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we've been uh, sort of planning something since since Dragonsteel. It was originally going to be that Emperor's Soul, I think, but mm-hmm. this lined up perfectly, yeah. so happy yeah, to talk about Tress. Yeah, you guys were Tress. right in front of the air. Right, right behind me in the uh, Sanderson signing line. Yeah, mm-hmm. it was fortuitous, and I'm glad we were able to connect. Mm-hmm. Fast friends. It was, it was great. Yeah, totally worked great. out. Yeah. Especially after uh, the, speaking like, of that, since we're, we, we don't really have a, a drinking segment, I think all of us are drinking coffee or tea. Morning uh, AM episode. Did you have a question for Brandon when you got up for him? And is it something um, that you can share? <laughs> I. So I did not have a question for him because I had him sign two acrylic paintings I had done okay. um, that were like three feet or four feet by two feet. Gotcha. So it was mostly just, hey, please sign these paintings. And uh, so I did not have a question prepared because okay. I was too nervous about that. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah, I, I saw you lugging those paintings around. That was that was cumbersome, but I'm glad it worked out. It, it was. I He, he said... And I'll never, I I don't think I'll ever feel a sense of joy, like disconnected from like having kids and getting married as when I showed him the painting, he said, oh my God, that's the painting from Warbreaker, isn't it? That looks exactly how I imagined it in my head when writing the book. That's awesome. (laughs) That's so cool. Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, what about you guys? Did you have questions for him? I asked him about Wayne and whether or not his ability to imitate people was somehow magical. And his answer was that it's not. He just generally gets an edge on things being an Alamancer. So like he's a little bit better because of that. Mm-hmm. Cool. 
And I, I had, I had a couple of questions, but like I, you know, the, the entire concept of this many people waiting in a line to ask him, you know, nerdy questions about whatever in the world. I was like, man, I know you played Elden Ring. What's your favorite moment of game design and your least fo- favorite? And like, just tell, tell me what's up. What'd you think? What, what'd you like? What didn't you like? And he was like, I loved and went off, went off on a couple of different things, but he was like, I despised Melania, but that's because I forced myself to be under leveled. I would have beaten it if it weren't, but I spent way too much time there. And I was like, that's reasonable. And uh, his favorite was the the series of the the white sheep bosses. I forget what they were called, but basically just the incremental the apostles. I think I forget what they're called. Anyway, point being, preferred that because it was gradually introducing mechanics to you throughout the game, and then culminating in like almost a final boss fight version of them right before kind of the Elden Ring fight. So it's cool. Cool. I was like, sweet. And, you know, he he got really into it, which I think was something like he's, of course, very into his stories and everything else. But it was nice to I kind of wanted to just like give him something for like sitting there and, you know, torturing himself for yeah. us. So it gives a different energy. Yeah, that's yeah. very kind of you. Yeah. I also wanted to know. So it was like it was a legit moment, too. Like I, I got my question answered. But at yeah. the same time, it was, you know, I, I didn't want to ask. I also in front of PJ didn't want to ask something like nerdy about Stormlight, you know, and like potentially ruin something there so that was my other side of things and remembered like we yeah, know this about me i'm so bad at remembering things <laughs> <laughs> i don't know that's that's a moment that i won't forget though it's just meeting brandon sanderson in general it was very cool and obviously peter we also met you that's a big deal inside of our our dragon steel experience so yeah. i gotta tell you guys uh because you recognized me you were like you're cosmere considered yes. aren't yeah. you and i was like <laughs> <laughs> what is happening in my life right now? Someone knows who I am. I was so unprepared. And I had like two or three other people that weekend, and I like they were like, "Hey, you're from TikTok, right?" And I was like, "Oh yeah, I am going to go have a little breakdown because I was not emotionally ready for this." So give me a minute. But unfortunately, you didn't have the space to go leave the line, so you were stuck. I, I with us. <laughs> <laughs> we trapped you. Yeah. It's, it's one of those things, too, where, like, we, we don't put our faces out there at all. The podcast, of course, at present, at the very least, we don't we do not do reels or anything like that. But we, we had a couple of people that came up to us because we were doing the we recorded a live show there. And we're like, it was just it's it's honestly like it is so humbling and like mind blowingly cool when people are like, I love what you do. And it's like, oh, I'm just a little nerd and I'm a fan of this guy like you are like yeah. <laughs> so good. So I feel that. I, I empathize with the experience that we gave you. <laughs> <laughs> Appreciate it. Yeah. I, I think kind of a fun thing to lead into this before we start talking about Tress itself. I would love to hear how you found or got to the Cosmere, kind of your, your origin story of sorts with Brandon Sanderson and the Cosmere. So I was reading Hyperion, which is an award-winning sci-fi book. And I read the first third of it. And it's really interesting. Like the first third was like, just consumed my thoughts. And I got to the second part of it. And the second act of Hyperion, spoilers, um, is basically just about a guy trying to find the woman that he's had sex with in his dreams. And that's like the driving force of his story. And I was just, I just was like, no. I was like, this is sad to me that this is award-winning because what is even happening? So I thought, okay, I'm going to go back to my old standby. And I picked up Orson Scott Card because I had read his books in high school and found out 
um, that he basically blames cancels for being transphobic. And I was like, well, maybe I won't go buy some of his new books because that's political and I don't want to get involved in that. And then I, because I had looked up Orson Scott Card, I got a offer from Amazon that was get um, The Way of Kings and Words of Radiance for one audible credit instead of two. And oh, I was like, what? I, I grabbed it. I got, I grabbed it. And I was like, this guy's a Mormon author. This is perfect. And I listened to both of those books and I was like, this is great. And then I met up with a friend and he was like, Hey, I just finished reading this book called Mistborn by Brandon Sanderson. And I was like, I just finished reading these books. And so we swapped. I gave him my login. He gave me his login and we, and we listened to, and then we were like, Oh my God, it's like the adventures. It's the same <laughs> universe. And then we like, we started a podcast that about it. And we just, I mean, since then I've just hyperfixated on the Cosmere. So like it's most of my personality almost. <laughs> so <laughs> Hey, that's totally reasonable. Yeah. No, got to, got to devote to something. I feel that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. question. Oh, so, so first was wave Kings words of radiance, then Mistborn. Then where, where'd you go from there? Did it, did you follow any specific order of reading or was it just kind when of whatever? This? That's also helpful. Oh, um, that was the deal that happened when words of radiance came out. Okay. Got it. I got into it when words of radiance came out. I found, I think I finished the Mistborn, the first Mistborn trilogy, went back and read Elantris. And then it was just kind of as things were published, I think, at that point. Because, mm-hmm. um, like, I grabbed Arcanum Unbounded. I grabbed, I have the first three parts, three of four White Sand comic books. Oh. Um, so I actually don't know how that story ends. I only know <laughs> the setup. <laughs> I'm waiting on my omnibus. Um, mm-hmm. I, yeah, I unfortunately haven't finished that one, but everything else I have read. And actually, this is this might surprise you. My favorite Sanderson book is Seeds. Mm. Yep. Which I just am a, a big fan of. It, I think it's because it reads like a movie starring Morgan Freeman um, <laughs> as like one of the main characters. So that's probably why. I am. I got that as a gift from a from a fan recently of of our show, and I am very very excited to give it a read because i haven't yet and it was his favorite read of last year so pumped it's fun i hope you like it yeah i'm excited because it seems like it's right up my alley given the the descriptions and everything else that i've read and you know the synopsis on the back and kind of the novella style of uh, storytelling as well as i always love so I'm, i'm a fan in concept for sure since since we're on the topic of the the favorite brandon sanderson novels what was what is your favorite which what's your standout you had to oh, it's so hard because it's for different reasons. Sure. Because like Warbreaker is probably my favorite book just for the twists. I know even on rereads, I'm like, oh God, I forgot. Um, so I love Warbreaker for that. Words of Radiance is my favorite for the politics and the villains in mm-hmm. that book. The Alloy of Law is my favorite reread because it just feels like Sherlock Holmes and the X-Men in turn of the century <laughs> new york and i just love that like it's just i like i still remember the first time listening to the audiobook when he's at the wedding party and he's like the doors at both ends of the hall burst open and then it's just like a 20 page chapter of shooting guns and i was like this is incredible i 
need more guns in this man's writing repertoire because he writes gun scenes very well. It's true. Um, and now, now my favorite reread is Trust of the Emerald Sea. Hell yeah. Could not have asked for a better transition into into talking about the book itself. So I am so excited to do that. So before we go into overall kind of like thoughts on this, I would love to start off with just a little summary for people who may not have read it yet. So I'm just going to read the summary that's straight up from Amazon from Dragonsteel themselves. So I, I'm going to stop you right there. If you haven't read it yet, read it. <laughs> what, what you should read it. I mean, here? you're welcome yeah. to listen to this anyway, <laughs> but go it's, read it. so it's so good. Really good. It's really good. Fair point. So the summary, again, for those who may need a refresher, although you shouldn't because it's only been out for a month, so it should be fresh in your brain hole <laughs> when you were reading this. That's neither here nor there. The only life Tress has known on her island home in an emerald green ocean has been a simple one with the simple pleasures of collecting cups brought by sailors from faraway lands and listening to stories told by her friend Charlie. But when his father takes him on a voyage to find a bride and disaster strikes, Tress must stow away on a ship and seek the sorceress of the deadly midnight sea. Amid the spore oceans where pirates abound, can Tress leave her simple life behind and make her own place sailing a sea where a single drop of water can mean instant death? Provided to you by best-selling author Brandon Sanderson, the Tress in the Emerald Sea. There's, you would imagine that tagline like right after it, but yeah. there isn't one. <laughs> ba, ba, ba. Ba, ba, ba. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's your movie trailer. How do we feel about this book overall? Peter loves it. so <laughs> I love it. PJ I, loves it. I loved it. I think it's my favorite Brandon Sanderson book so far. Mm. Wow. I really, really That's love awesome. it. <laughs> it's, I think Brandon Sanderson suggests reading Going Postal um, by Terry Pratchett, if you've never read Pratchett. And I got like, it's, nice. it's so funny and it reads so well. And then reading this, it was very clear how he tried to capture some of that Pratchett humor. Mm-hmm. And it works so well. It's so funny. And it's really well written. I love it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Terry Pratchett is definitely one of the primary. There are a couple of what I would say are like primary inspirations for this novel. Of course, like the Princess Bride itself is like a foundational thing in the original sort of text that accompanies it being, you know, the actual book itself being a big inspiration beyond just the movie. It feels very reminiscent in those ways. Um, but I think Pratchett is maybe the number one source of humor and that sort of fantasy comedy that just like there are few that nail as effortlessly i actually truly i don't think that there's anyone that nails it as effortlessly as pratchett did but yeah i think i think he does a great job wrapping that into hoyd's character and making him feel very interesting i loved the book up until the last six chapters and then i liked the book and so that's why i think like i'm i'm always gonna have warbreaker higher in my head but this is right there in the top like five this is a wonderful story and i restarted it this morning just to listen to the first couple of chapters again and was like damn it this is this is so enrapturing like it's wonderfully written Mm -hmm. and i'll i'll come back to this later but i have i have a theory on why this planet and why this story but we can come back to that in a bit. Yeah. 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 It it feels like there are some very clear, like, I mean, there's some very obvious connections. I haven't read Pratchett, so I I can't speak to that one, but the princess bride is explicitly stated in the, uh, in the postscript, but even without it, it's pretty clear that that was like, I think within the first couple chapters, Crossland texted me. He's like, this feels like the princess bride very excitedly. Mm -hmm. Um, I liken it to the Hobbit. I I just yeah. 
just the pacing of it and the way all the like chapters are broken up into these little contained chunks just feels very similar, which I love. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I'm, Yo, I feel great about I it. I agree. I, yeah. It's like when I read that note, when you were like, it sounds like the Hobbit. I was like, yeah, it's like Tress there and back again. Like <laughs> it, yeah. it has that very same vibe for sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'd be curious if he took any inspiration from that directly or indirectly. It, it definitely carries that prequel kind of weight almost where it's like, it's sure it's long and, and it's not long for Sanderson, but it's a longer book, but it definitely has that feel of like, there's another story after this one, like the story that's about the pirate captain. And this is the prequel. I don't know, which is one of the reasons that for me, the ending is a little sad, not sad, but a little less. Like you said, the last six chapters, I liked it. And it's like, well, yeah, she spent the entire book learning all these things, getting all this knowledge. And then she didn't use it. And the book ended. Yes. Yeah. That that's actually honestly, probably a fair point because it is the solution kind of comes out of left field as opposed to her utilizing that information. I hadn't pinned it that closely, but that is probably why the tech reveal for me didn't hit nearly as hard where I was just like, Oh, okay. Like all these different things, like that's fine. I know that's where the universe is going, but it kind of bummed me out because it felt like Tress wasn't doing her thing. If that made sense. And I, I think you nailed it. I think that's why. <laughs> so we could yeah. we can button up this podcast right now. That's that's all I wanted to talk about. We'll see yeah. you next week. We're going <laughs> to. I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm totally with you on that. I And I think to that point on the exploration side of the story, right? There is this beautiful world, of course. I mean, it wouldn't be Brandon Sanderson if it weren't an incredible world where we have fluidization of these like solid oceans that feel like liquid. It's wonderful. And the aethers finally being explored and spores. Yeah. I mean, what would we think of the magic of this story and how that's captured? I don't know. I, I loved it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's unique yeah, I... and it's, it's well established and well thought up. I, so much fun <laughs> but consistent across all the different types of ethers different types of spores like it's it's it maintains a consistency of mechanics while having wildly different effects and it creates this really really cool mosaic of of magic within the system yes yeah i love i love the magic it felt it just it made me want more Mm-hmm. I like. I want to know about all the aethers and all the seas. I want. I want the world building of that planet, just so I can know about that because it was just so interesting. Yeah, I I definitely had a had a similar kind of moment. I was when I was listening to the story. It it was it is very. It will forever be very funny to me. Jay, we were in the middle of the lost metal, and we were just getting introduced to Twin Soul, and at the same time as this book came out. And so PJ suddenly had information on the Aethers that I didn't have when I read The Lost Metal. And I was like, that is so funny because you should know fucking nothing like the rest of us did. But you don't because of this like incredibly well-timed release that just like gave you the answers to things. And I was like, God damn it. How convenient for you. <laughs> It was it was very well done. So I just there there was a little geek out moment that I had around the the Aethers as well. 
Um, and it's maybe the geekiest moment that I've had since like reading Stormlight for the most part. But Hoyd makes mention at some point of the Luhill bond, right? And we talk about sort of the relationship there. We know as well from that description, PJ doesn't actually know what this is, but he does mention the Nahil bond being of the, the bond of the mind. And you can imagine the same thing. The Luhill bond being a bond of the body is the way that it's described. So naturally, knowing Brandon's three realm theory and like the whole romantic system, that means that there's this third bond out there that has to be a spirit bond of some kind. And I must know more. <laughs> is I thought is the I thought the Nile bond was the spirit bond. I think it's I think it's mind, but I'll double check real quick. But either way, that does leave the that I it either leaves the mind or the spirit open yet for a bond to be described. If the and I. If the spirit one is still open, could that be encapsulated by hemallergy? No. Well, okay. No. Not to the same degree that you're suggesting. Okay. So we know the two bonds we know about. This isn't super spoilery. I'm going to think about it for a sec. Yeah, it's not. So the two bonds we know about predate the shattering. Mm -hmm. Okay. Which means the third one should as well. So mm -hmm. who knows? Maybe it has to do with dragons. I don't know. Good. I do like that dragons exist now. And maybe they did otherwise, but I haven't seen any. Did how did you feel? That's skipping ahead, but I do I am curious how you felt about the dragon's appearance. I don't recall the description. He's like He's black with like pearlescent outlining almost. And he has a beard also like a mane on his head and like dragons with hair have always thrown me off. So I was like, Oh no, a dragon with hair, but I'll trust Brandon to a, a hairy dragon. <laughs> so that's, that's yeah. more in the stylings of the sort of serpentine Chinese mythologies, right? Well, I think, I, he said in an interview once, he said that he always pictures the dragons from Earthsea, hmm. Tales, Tales of Earthsea, as his dragons in his head because he grew up with those, I think is what he said. So that might be, I think okay. those have beards. Gotcha. But they are European dragons. They do have like, you know, four legs and the big wings and stuff. Okay. Yeah, I I, I didn't really dwell on it on the on the description. I also listen at two and a half X speed most of the time, just because Michael Kramer talks so slowly throughout <laughs> these books and I can get through two listens at, in, in the same amount of time as listening to it once, which is kind of necessary for our show. Oh, that, that dragon scene goes pretty quickly. It's, it's basically yes. one chapter. And so we, it didn't dwell on it. So I didn't dwell on it, but that, that does feel fairly unique compared to like what I've, would have experienced as far as depictions of dragons go. I'm down with it though. I think that's pretty cool. Mullet dragon, basically. <laughs> yeah. Mullet dragon. The the so another another point. Obviously, we don't have the physical books yet. But if in a PJ, I'm assuming you haven't seen them. Did you look for the at the art for the book and the dragon? Did you guys look at the Kindle EPUB? Oh man, I I kind of like the depiction in the art of the hair. Like generally, I'm with you. I don't I don't like the idea of a hairy dragon, but it it feels somewhere in between a lot of things. It almost has a more Celtic sort of spin to it that I, I'm okay with. In addition to the rest, I did want to clarify. So textually, here's here's the wording from Hoyd in this book. So 
The Nahil Bond, which trades in consciousness and anchoring to reality. The Luhil Bond trades in physical matter. So I think that's got to be the second, and I think we're still missing spiritual. Um, yep. Yeah, so. But point being, I mean, that doesn't change the context of what we were talking about. So so it's just interesting. It's my nerd bit. So. Oh, I love that. I'm excited. I I hadn't even considered that. So I'm excited to think about that. There's my crazy theory. There's a third one somewhere. We don't know. We don't know what it is yet. But it's out there. Nah, he's just going to let that one float. If there's anything that Brandon Sanderson is, it's uh, complete. <laughs> I mean, none of the stories are finished yet, so <laughs> maybe, hey, yeah, there, there's <laughs> proof. Yeah, or back up my claim. I personally, okay, so since we're talking about the dragon, I think that that reveal in that moment with Crow is really interesting. We can talk about Crow for sure. What do we make of the whole dragon scene and sequence, and this idea of him being kind of under? the ground and studying you know basically on the ocean floor um what would you guys make of the dragon itself outside of the physical depiction i i felt like it created this really cool play on the idea of a horde being knowledge and and oh what's it called research basically and he's, he's bargaining for research subjects more or less so i i, I felt like that maintained the the traditional like idea of dragons hoarding things without it without it just being treasure which felt cool i mean mean, there there are different dragons that deal in different treasures we've we've dealt with one in our D &D campaign that's true fairly similarly go listen to tales of kana catacomb yeah yeah but it i i liked that and the setting, the layer, if you will, being at the bottom of the sea is really cool and weird and treacherous, but perfect for a dragon's lair if they're able to sustain themselves there. So I felt like it just fit really, really well within that setting. And I loved that he felt almost human with his, like, he gets amused at their squabbling when she's like, I have brought you this one and, and then Tress is like I have brought you this one and the dragon's like this is funny keep talking <laughs> <laughs> I just love that because I feel like often dragons are like smog who are like all they care about is like violence and their horde and mm-hmm. this dragon is like this is fun let's have a, let's have a chit chat and let's let this and go. also I like I like that he's like listen I, I treat my slaves really well like you get to read books when you're not working. You know, it's a nice life down here. You guys get to talk and hang out. You know, you never get to see the sun again, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. There, there is a sort of almost comedy to a lot of the way that he plays off, like like the whole book, right? And so that's that's why it works so well. And I, I really, I love Zyxis for that reason. I think he also he also says something that he's like, I prefer not to call them slaves. <laughs> I prefer to call them, yeah, patrons or something like that. I can't remember what the word was that was used, but it, it absolutely was was perfect. Yes. Yeah. It also reminded me, again, if we're talking about Princess Bride parallels, with Crow and Tress in this moment, of the same sort of scene with Vizini and like the sort of trickery of like, marching back and forth and it has that same feel but it's not a clone at all like it's it's that same sort of trick in a in a fable or a story like this and i i loved that about it that's awesome 
so we are we are so far ahead, but that's kind of the name of the game. We don't follow any kind of order in the show, and you know, if you if you're not along for that ride, you're <laughs> along for it right now because you're listening anyway. So, <laughs> I, I guess we we maybe should start at the beginning with at the very least like a small little bit here on sort of the initial prospect of Tress as a character, collector of cups, quaint sort of quaint town that she's from, kind of in love with the groundskeeper, not groundskeeper, King's son Charlie. Um, what do we make of the initial premise of the story and the way that this opens on the Emerald Sea? I love that it just feels like one big trope. Like it's like, it's, I mean, it hits like seven tropes in the first few chapters. Mm-hmm. And then the, it shatters it, all like, and like even all the tropes it sets up, it breaks down at the end of each setup. Cause she's like, I think I'll be content to stay on this island for the rest of my life. And you're like, that's not what an adventurer says. And like, that's how it breaks down every trope is like just her as a person is not the person to be in that trope. Um, and I just, I just love it. She, she feels exactly like I want a hero to feel like, because I love all of Sanderson's heroes, but they all have something that like bugs me at least a little bit about them. And for Tress, the thing that bugs me is that I don't have more of her yet. <laughs> <laughs> I just more, please. Can I? Yeah. yeah. Another book. <laughs> and I, I think kind of to piggyback off of that a little bit, just the, the amount of tropiness throughout the whole thing, but paired with how hard it leans into it. The fact that it, they all get broken down, like you mentioned, but also that it's self-aware of them. And maybe that's a, a function of being narrated by Hoyd, but like it, it is so self-aware of these tropes. And I think that's why it works so well somehow. Yeah. I, I, I adore just the storybook opening of, of all of this. It, it felt so good. Yeah. It, it feels it. And I love, I love that it is intentionally layering those tropes on. I think a lot of people for the record, this is more of a general thing. I'm talking about this tomorrow with another friend to record a show. But I think that a lot of people view tropes as a bad thing. It's really just a lens through which we experience stories that we already understand. Like, that's not a bad thing necessarily. It is a guidepost. It's an expectation. And there's nothing wrong with a little bit of expectation when you're kind of setting yourself up because it sets up everything else. And in this story that is layered with these tropes upon tropes upon tropes, we also get this wonderful description that, like, Tress is just so delightfully normal and just so like delightfully average. And like, that's kind of the idea of like where she is in life. And that the fact that she is normal is like a core crutch of the whole story, because you can, you can approach things with a very, very different mindset if you aren't full of ego and all of these other things. And that being her superpower, I think is delightful throughout the entire story. Yes. Hoyd's insight throughout the story of him, like every time he, pauses in the telling to talk about her as a person is like it reinforces how normal and yet special she is Mm -hmm. which just deepens her character and i love that yeah we got to talk about hoyt as a narrator (laughs) I, i think we made the comparison you made the comparison earlier peter to of course terry pratchett and i think that that's definitely apparent but this is the first long story i guess that pj has probably experienced from hoyd in any regard given there is of course the story in warbreaker that is narrated inside of that one chapter but i think outside of that this is like the first long form experience that any of us have really had with hoyd that's longer than 
you know, pages. So what do we make of this master story crafter, this world bringer telling us the story? He's fun. I like him. (laughs) (laughs) That is good to hear. (laughs) I'm I'm excited to hear from you in uh, several podcast episodes where you read (laughs) some more books. Yep. (laughs) Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love I love his energy. I love how he like when he pauses and takes those breaks. They feel very much like he is talking to, from our point of view, someone who is like bound and gagged. Like it feels like he's telling the story to like a prisoner on their way to execution or something, mm-hmm. and like they're not allowed to talk or something. And he's just like, yeah, here's this really long story. That'll tell you while we're both on our way to be executed, but I won't die, but you might. And, and like, it's just, it just fits so well. And I'm so excited. I don't know when it'll happen, but in a few books, I'm sure we will be like reading a chapter and he'll be like, have I ever told you of Tress of the Emerald Sea? And like, it'll cut chapters. And then, you know, a few chapters later, you know, he'll miss, that story will like come up like peripherally as having been told, and we'll be like, we we know who he told this story to now. And it takes twelve hours. The story takes twelve hours. <laughs> like, <laughs> you're totally right. I, that's totally going to happen. There's no doubt in my mind. <laughs> oh, that'd be that'd be super a super cool nesting of of storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um. I, I similarly am very curious to whom the story is being narrated to, right? Like who is this person bound and gagged, you know, in, in the moment and given some, we, we have timing context, but we have no other context outside of that. So I'm very intrigued where he's sitting, telling the story to whom, from what world they're from. He says at different points that like your world has these things, you would understand them as this. And so that constantly gives me little flags that I'm just trying to understand. Have you read, PJ, have you read Six of the Dusk? No, don't think he has. There's a good chance that it's there, though. Yeah, I, I, it's a short story, but I think that someone from that world is the one being narrated to because of a few different things he says. Talking about trappers and the, he uses a few different words that are from that story. Mm-hmm. So I think maybe it's someone from that land, but. And we don't actually know where in the timeline Trest is. It feels like it's in the future from like the main Cosmere storyline. But yes, yeah, I I think that you know we we can kind of imply by the end of the story with the reveal of different technologies and components there that we are well past where we are in present, um, and we are at the very least on the edge of space travel, which is pre Mistborn era four. It seems. Yeah. Um, so that's that's where my brain goes. Is it somewhere maybe post era three when Warbreaker two takes place? Like we don't we don't really know. I think it's maybe the latest entry. Six Dusk could still be later than it in theory, but I think I think one of those two are contending for the latest spot in the Cosmere right now. Yeah, I so agree. Just to it's- add a little bit more information or context potentially for who Hoyd's talking to, it felt to me like there was an audience. Mm -hmm. as opposed to a singular person because of a couple comments where he talks about like the normality, like the normal points of this world. And he said, it's as normal as this or 
something else wherever you're like whatever world you might be from so it sounds like he's either talking to multiple people or somebody he doesn't necessarily know the origin of i would love if he is just like saying this whole story to a group of kelsier and his friends just like yeah <laughs> that was ghost splits yeah that yeah. would fit also because of the use of the name Sazed as opposed to Harmony. Mm. Yeah, that is a whole that's a whole bucket fun. of worms. Yeah. Nice. I, I missed that. That is hmm. That's smart. I don't know. Don't know how to feel about that. Uh, did you guys I did you guys catch cuz I missed this on my first read but on my second read i know we're gonna i'm gonna jump to the end of the book now because i'm terrible at chrono- yeah. chronological order <laughs> so are we <laughs> um but the, <laughs> the sorceress is from miss board secret history yes did you guys yeah. catch that yeah mm-hmm. indeed rena right i believe right rina yeah the audio Rina, which rina which uh, Makes sense with the laundry and language and the way that, that those break up into single syllable bits to, yeah. I just love, I loved like, like that tiny connection, like, cause all of the, all of the Cosmere world hopping connections are so fun. But then like little things like that, where like, you have to have read, which what is most likely one of the most obscure Cosmere novellas to understand who the sorceress is and like what she's a part of, which is interesting that she's alone now. Because she was a part of uh, Irie or the Ice Free or whatever it's called. And now she's alone in a rocket ship on an island on a planet that is created or controlled by Whimsy. Yeah, one is not sure. There, it, Whimsy is mentioned enough times for it to be like a, huh, okay, all right. <laughs> and, the word Whimsy is capitalized too many times for this to be a fucking coincidence. <laughs> Yeah, and, and Brandon said Brandon mentioned Whimsy in like the mm. Kickstarter videos when he talked about this one, and mm. so like we know that she's part of it, but like also, yeah, there was a few points where the capital capital Whimsy mm-hmm. um, was mentioned, and I was like, oh man, that is that's me sneaky, Brandon. I I think that the fact that it is Whimsy, I kind of want to go on this tangent, and then I'll return to the Rhina thing. I think that the fact that we assume that there is some direct connection with Whimsy being it maybe the Shard World, or maybe not the Shard World, maybe it was just there for a while, um, specifically the way that the rain is its own sort of depiction of Whimsy, right? Like, it's this idea of like, yeah, I'm very consistent until I want to be interesting. And then on the red, on the Crimson Sea is when he's like, yeah, this is the interesting rain. This is where we can just do whatever the hell we want for the for the sake of, you know, and I, I think that that's kind of the, the vibe that I get or one of the things that tips me off to believing that this world is, was invested by Whimsy or was created maybe with Whimsy or Whimsy was there to begin with. There's some touch point of Whimsy in this, and I'm very confident because of the rain specifically was the thing that made me feel that. Yeah. I only listened to the audiobook, so I didn't realize there were capital letters. Wow. <laughs> you would do that. Way to go, PJ. We clean the audio too, so don't worry about coughing or anything like that. We got you. But yeah, I, I really, I really enjoyed kind of the, I loved how like Cosmere aware the story was, but like how unobtrusive it was to the storytelling at the same time. It was, it was all like there all the time and it was mentioned and made mention of by Hoyd and it 
danced around in fun way. And I think that's another part of the reason that I feel like just a little just a little robbed by the ending with with the tech reveal and you know a big part of that of course like you said earlier being Tress's character moment just the even the throwing around the term laptop given the context of the rest of the story and tablet for me was just like hmm I don't love that but I understand why you're doing it works because it's hoid but at the same time it didn't work for my brain because you're gelling in one chamber of the story and then all of a sudden you're jumping um, and making technological leaps and yeah yeah the the word laptop I am frustrated with mm-hmm. because uh, I think a lot of things have Earth names on Scadrial. Mm-hmm. That's like just that's a big thing is that it's an Earth, you know, parallel planet. But laptop feels like such a modern word that it like it kicks me out of the book completely. Hundred percent. I I had to like take I had to pause the book I had to take a second be like laptop, what is happening? And before going back into it, before yeah. getting to the laptop part, when talking about the tablets, he refers to that as Nelthian tech, I believe. Mm-hmm. It's a um, breaker. Yeah, yeah. So I'd assume the laptop would be part of that as well. But yeah, no, you're you're right because it's a, they have awakened circuitry. He says mm-hmm. so, which is interesting. That all seemingly because well you okay hold on spoilers yeah, yeah I know <laughs> so while while, <laughs> while the- you're thinking about that he does give another name for the laptop before like not correcting himself but giving that alternate name seemingly as a like, throwing a bone to the audience of whoever he's talking to if it's us or if it's somebody within the Cosmere or whatever but he, he- seems to be aware that there are different names for it he. So it's he doesn't call it anything differently. What he says is, so the woman herself sat at her desk near the bookshelves holding a fluffy white cat and idly doing something on her laptop. Or, I mean, her magical seeing board in quotations. Gotcha. And that is, okay. that is what took me out of the story. Because it's like, okay, you understand that this is enough to like be a joke. And that's why I was like, it sh- it, this is playing all of Hoyt's humor lands for the most part for most of the story. And like, that is a joke, but at the same time, it's so disingenuous and it's a point of friction for me in this story. And it's so silly because it's one, it's one paragraph, but I, ah. yeah. And I, I like the whole time when we like Fort has his writing board, his <laughs> listening board in my head, I was picturing like a wooden plank that like formed magic words on it. Like I was picturing complete magic. Etch a sketch for me. Yeah. yeah, He's holding like an iPad Mm -hmm. at the end of it. I was like, Oh, that's sad. (laughs) That that's just an iPad and not awakened wood or something. Yeah. I imagine like a, a small chalkboard that the words appeared on. Yeah. Yeah, and it it is it is that like it robs some of the magic of the story, like some of that sort of the whimsical nature of the whole thing, and this fact that this feels kind of like a fable. It, it just kind of takes the wind out of it at the eleventh hour too, which is just kind of like a damn it. <laughs> like it would have been fine if this were explained in a different story, or like we came to understand. You know, let's say Warbreaker two skips forward a million years. I don't know how long really. I'm just using a million as the placeholder, but. Let's skips forward to the point of where this is commonplace and it's technology or whatever. We could go, oh, the tablet that Fort has is like the thing that Fort is using is a tablet. Duh. Okay, got it. Like that's different than telling us in the story um, 
what it is and kind of I, I robbing the magic to some degree. I don't know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah. that is kind of the name of the game with later Cosmere, though. Like as we're starting to approach that is it's it's become it's going to become a little bit less. and It's gradually becoming a little bit less whimsical and more science. And so while it's still a very cool expression of these things, that is truly if you want to embody my concern for the back half of the Cosmere, that is it. It's it's losing this sort of intangibility of this all and having it be so defined that it's like just cool execution of ideas as opposed to something that inspires awe. And that's that's my only concern. Like my general think, like fear. Yeah. And I think that very fear, I think I hope Brandon is aware of it because yeah. it feels like things like the Aethers and whatever the third type of bond is mm-hmm. are the things that are going to hold that whimsy. Because like the Aethers don't feel, I mean, they obviously have rules for how they operate. We learned that in the book, but they feel beyond the ideas of technology in a way. Mm-hmm. Like even early on, in like the first Mistborn books, I could, because I knew he was like, I want to get to the space age. With this I was like, okay, yeah, I can see how this could work in space age. And with the Aethers, I'm like, I do not see how growing crystal will work in a space age or, or <laughs> growing plants. Uh, and it just feels very different in that sense. So I hope that that can contain some of the whimsy, whimsy as we yeah. get more into that life. That makes sense. Yeah. And I, I I wouldn't place the blame on Sanderson. I just think that is the delicate line to walk. And I think that this story was walking it for so long and then it just veered the other direction. And that was just a little bit too much of a veer for me away from that as it felt like it kind of came out of left field. And it, it makes sense. That's the other the, the other side of this is that, like, I'm not I'm not mad because it doesn't function in the story it totally does it totally works and i'm also not mad to begin with but i was just kind of like shucks i kind of liked the way that this was going before this moment yeah but yeah we should talk about the other characters i know that we've we've been all over the cosmere roadmap and i i love i love that about the show but i would love to chat just about the crew in general um the it the asshole father the wonderful parents that tress has which is also a first for brandon to have a loving dad in a story wow crazy what a concept what do we make of of our cast of characters i mean the dugs anyway i love it i love i love all of it i one of my thing one of the things i noticed about a comment on the talk i posted was that there are no separated previously married couples in the cosmere until the end of this book when the duchess leaves the duke for abandoning their child which i thought was really cool to throw that in there where she was like that's a line um but then I think like the like the the portrayal of the Dugs is hilarious. But I love Fort and Anne are both mm-hmm. great characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Tress's parents are so good, <laughs> and like there there's the so many complicated heartstrings that are being pulled between like her kind of taking lead on feeding the family and being like worried about how they're going to get on when she leaves the sort of logical map that her father takes to like say, yeah, that makes sense that you should go because you've been so logical and you've clearly thought out every other possibility. So like, who am I to stop you from doing this? The advanced fathering scene where he goes to the bar and (laughs) doesn't ask for help, but 
brings up all the things he's done for everybody. And like, that's just kind of the name of the game in this community of like trading in, in, in favors. The dart scene was fucking hilarious. Oh, so <laughs> <I> love- great. <laughs> Shooting at the knots in the wood. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I love her father and everything that he does for her and, and the, the leaps he goes to support her in this, in this adventure. It's great. I, I have this small thing with Fort, right? And I, I know that we're not, I think that we know that he's from Lumar, but there's just this undertone of, I actually can't talk about that because PJ hasn't finished Lost Metal yet. But that I know exactly what you're you, not saying. I yep. have the same thought. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. All right. As long, as long as you're on the same page as me. Love you guys. <laughs> you're so close to the end, too, that it's just like, damn it. Oh, God, I want to talk about it. But yeah, I, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna leave that there. I love Fort <laughs> as a character. I love Soleil. I I really I really enjoy the crew. Anne is wonderful, and also the way that the crew generally like gradually shifts in favor of Tress. I think is fantastic over the course of the story as she just kind of wins them over by being herself. I think that's one of the things that's wonderful about her is that like she just continues to be who she is, and that everyone gravitates towards that because she's very honest and real about what she's presenting to everyone. So. so good so sweet so awesome that like that energy that she brings and the whole crew loves Mm -hmm. and that being the final thing where like bro is like well i'm definitely gonna give you to the dragon because the crew loves you Mm -hmm. because like in my mind part of her is like it's more useful to have a sprouter on board than laggart even Mm -hmm. though laggart is very cowed like i think in my head, Crow was like, maybe I'll give Lagger to the dragon still. Mm-hmm. But then she wins the crew's love. And she's like, well, now that you've saved the ship and everyone loves you, I have to kill you. Like, yeah. this I have no choice. of that character loved her as a villain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Going off of that some more between all of these characters and the dogs as a whole, just the, the crew entirely getting on her side and being won over made for another potential reference point or inspiration point i don't know if it's true but it just felt so similar and it felt so good but have you seen our flag means death yet i have not i watched the trailer because uh, i saw so it in the good notes, and i i love reese darby is that his name yep that's the main character mm-hmm. that yep. he's so funny yeah um, i want to watch it now that i've seen the trailer yeah, it, it's yeah. it is so good, but just this wholesome pirate crew that aren't really exactly what they need to be yet, but the the morale of the ship kind of brings them in line, and it's very different from a standard pirate crew, like pirate ship by the, by the end of it all. But um, it just it felt very similar to to this this crew dynamic. I don't know if you felt the same way, Crossland, but I totally did. I, you, I, so I hadn't, I hadn't really considered that that way. It is definitely, you know, in, in context, and this isn't, we, we won't go into our flag means death spoilers by any stretch, but in, in, 
pirate that shouldn't be a pirate, right, is kind of the the whole idea of the story. But he wants to be so badly. Um, <laughs> and, like, getting a pirate crew to, like, rally around your, like, weird morality of, like, well, I don't know that we should kill them. And, like, okay. I Okay. Well, and the gradually winning them all over is very much the same energy that Tress has throughout the story. And it, they... They do float along similar parallels, even the fact that they're pirate ships to begin with. I think the writing of the story does predate the release of Our Flag Means Death, regardless, but it is a parallel nonetheless. Because of when, you know, in 2020 he wrote it, so. Right. That makes sense. But. um, Maybe it's just that it's on a pirate ship and it's unconventional, so it reminded me of it. (laughs) I mean, it's it's also similar to the winning over of uh, Fezzik and Inigo Montoya, right? The same kind of way where they're like won over because of the acts of mm-hmm. Wesley. Wow. I pulled all those names out of a distant pocket of my brain. But yeah, I, oh man, Crow, speaking of Crow, Crow is, I think, I think I, I think I can stand by this. I think Crow is my favorite Cosmere villain in a ton of different ways. I think that it's because she is so relatable and very real. Like her goal is to cure her cancer effectively. And like, that's her mission. And she goes through it by maniacal and manipulative means, of course, because that's the only path that she can see to actually getting people to commit to this insane act of going to the Emerald Sea, not the Emerald Sea, the Crimson Sea. And so I I think that that just makes her an incredibly compelling character because she is much more morally gray than most of Sanderson's villains, because ultimately she doesn't like she doesn't have the desire to kill people. She just sees it sees it as a means to the ends of solving her problem. Yeah. Makes for a nice, complex, juicy, juicy bit to jump into. And, and I don't, I don't know if he's done this in other stories, but it was interesting to learn that because Ulam says she's, it's painful. It's very painful to be a sport eater. Um, and so I'm like very curious, you know, if because I I've known a few people that have chronic pain mm-hmm. who you know on a scale of one to ten they're at a seven most days and like. Some of them have been very kind and very nice, but some of them have been, they're just bitter and they're just, they're just hurting. And so of course they're grumpy and upset 90% of their life because how could you not be when you're in constant pain and how that's a very real in that sense. And I know that that's not true for everybody who has chronic pain, but I think that kind of honesty from that character was very interesting to me. And of course she also has, I'm sure she was you know raised by terrible parents because it says she had never known love. Um, so mm-hmm. like she has a whole host of issues that aren't her chronic pain and her poisonous spores, but it was cool to kind of see that in the cosmos. Yeah. 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 Uh, I do like, uh, while I agree with you, Crossland, I do want to push back a little bit on the note about it being more morally gray because it's a means to the end for herself. There's no like overarching, like, Yes, I'm I'm killing people, but ultimately it'll save a lot more in the future. Like that feels more morally gray than selfishness. You're right. You're right. You know I, what? It, what I'm what I'm trying to get at, I guess, is that I think that a lot of Brandon Sanderson's other villains are very strictly black. You know, like Straff is is an asshole, is a deliberate piece of shit for all kinds of reasons, and similarly has has a lot of those same traits she's got a little bit of gray but i don't think it's real gray like it's she's power hungry among others and like blue fingers even you know but i don't think any of them are written in a way also the stakes are lower like that's the other part of the story that i love is that there are lower stakes and so it feels like a more intimate conflict um 
which also feels well presented. So, yeah. Yeah. But mm-hmm. you're right. You're right. It isn't, it isn't morally gray in the, in the conventional ways. It's just a little bit grayer than most of our villains uh, yeah. thus far. Okay. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> most people will disagree with me. That's fine. But I love, I love Crow. I love, oh my God. The entire system of the cannonballs too, and the way that Tress learns all of that as well throughout the, the series. Talk about like the science of this world and the way that the spores function. I know we talked a little bit about this at the top, but the way that that is given to us in pieces over the course of the story is excellent. Hmm. So, th- so I, I mentioned earlier that I wanted to bring this up, and that is a great lead-in for me to say, I think Brandon, he wrote this book for his wife, as he mm-hmm. said, and he used the bride kind of as an inspiration. But I think the main reason we have this planet and the spore knowledge that we now have is you can now, in the Cosmere, in like modern era Cosmere, have basically a D&D adventuring party. Is because you can mm. have a person that has like antique guns and you have a cowboy and you have the sword fighters and you have the people that use magic to like bring their clothes to life. And now there's dragons and, and you can now sail a sea as pirates with very dangerous magical terrain around you. Or you can go to far off lands and big cities to do a whole bunch of different things. And so there's all of these things that he's brought together. And when I talk to people about like the Cosmere, I'm like, honestly, sometimes it feels like Brandon is writing this entire series as a means to an end of creating the thing that will replace D&D, where people will say, yeah, I'm I'm a Nalcian, um spore eater whose father fought alongside some famous characters from the Cosmere. And uh, this, you know, and then the 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 game master, the world hopper who's playing the game for everybody's like, <laughs> and we're taking our adventure on the spore sea. And we're starting in the, uh, the sunlight sphere sea where the spheres turn into fire when they get wet. And like, that's where it feels like it's all building with the knowledge and the way that it all came at us. Mm-hmm. I think that also the fact that not all of the spores have been explicitly defined allows for like going off of that idea allows for the the game master to put their own touches on this on this planet and create unique spore types and and mechanics it, that'd be super super cool to play within it yeah. it also it also totally gives him the idea like it gives this foundation to that there's more to explore here yet which isn't just like an idea of like more books potentially but also is something that will be like, oh, there will be other spores to the point of that we were talking about earlier, maintaining a sense of magic in the later stages of the Cosmere. I think that this is the way to do it is keeping seven of these under wraps still, potentially eight with the secret spore of which I am. I'm fairly confident that it's white sand, right? Can we all do we all think that it's white sand? Are we pretty sure that white sand might be the aether, the secret aether? I think it might be. PJ, yeah, I know you haven't true. read it, but white sand is a strange. It's, I don't, I don't, it's weirdly <laughs> canon and weirdly not canon is the way that Brandon keeps saying, like it is canon, but like they're rewriting it. So I don't know. I don't feel bad about that one versus Stormlight. So <laughs> yeah, I think you're a hundred percent right. Um, yeah. that White Sand is the last acre. Seemingly. Yeah. Do you think there's actually 16 of them? Instead of 13? Hmm. 
I don't know. I don't know. Interesting. 13 would be a very weird number for Brandon to use, even even considering the Aethers predate the shattering of Adelnausia. It would be very weird for him to have 13. So. Yeah. Unless that's something connected with the Aethers and like them being, I don't know. I don't know. Unless there is some like prime Aether being, you know, that was maybe in conjunction with Indulnasium. I don't know. I don't know. It was a bunch of good. We're not, we're not, we're not going to know for a while. I was mentioning something and you definitely pointed out when I was talking about the books, right? And the story on the world kind of connecting to the point about the D and D. Do you think that there'll be more books? That kind of seemed to be the way that your, your eyes shot up when I said that. So <laughs> I think like, when he wrote his sci-fi series, the Skyward mm-hmm. series, he brought in J.C. Patterson to write the novellas. And now he's brought in Dan Wells to be part of the narrative, to write more of the Cosmere, cosmic horror stuff. It would not surprise me if he has another author in the wings who he want, who has kind of that Terry Pratchett writing style, who he wants to install in this kind of world. Maybe not, but I'd be... Even if it's even if it's a few years away, I I would expect there to be like even if it's five or six years away, I would expect there to be a sequel of some kind. Because the knowledge that trust gains is so massive mm-hmm. um, and the amount of character development she has is so large that for her to not have a continued story seemed almost offensive to that. <laughs> so I yeah. really hope there's another story. Yeah. I'm with you. Mm-hmm. I love that. EJ, what do you think? I'm not sure. I, I'd love for there to be more. I want for there to be more. But I could see this being just a, just a fun standalone story that gets passed around. Potentially one that's not even entirely factual, like could be majorly made up by Hoyd. I don't like that idea, but I could see it happening. I don't, I don't know. Liar sometimes. I And... Brandon's favorite literary trope is an unreliable narrator. So, dang it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, definitely the case. I think that's also, you know, I, I know that on the other side, on the meta tech side of this, right? Brandon's doing this in part because he is going to eventually have to go back and write the Dragonsteel books. And so he, those are all going to be narrated from Hoyd. And so he is kind of using some of these stories as practice to get there and is going to be writing more to nail down that voice so that we can talk about the foundation of the universe, as it were, in the Dragonsteel series and what happened precisely and kind of break that down. But, you know, I, I think that this is interesting as an exercise in in sort of that thing, especially because it does Hoyt is a little bit. I wouldn't say he's like fully unreliable, but he's not fully reliable either. Like there's definitely some questions of like how far things stretch in which directions. And yeah. So I'm intrigued by what this means for the future storytelling in other related adventures. Yeah. I'm also curious just based on this being told by Hoyd. We, we talked a little bit about the, the placement where, where this is within the Cosmere, but this story is well before this telling because he, he talks about how I think Ford is going, is writing out all the stupid things that he says. And he, he says that he's going to hold it over his head for decades. And then he's like, he did. So like, this is decades wow. after the telling or after the story happens. Wow. Fair point. Yeah. So not only 
man. Ah, oh, man. Why didn't I think of that? Good work. Good work. <laughs> yeah. That it has to be, right? So not only is this deeper in the timeline than we've been, but he's also recanting it to someone. So the meta narrative of whoever is being told this is even later in the worlds. Hmm. Now all I want, now that you said that, I just want Tress and her crew to be like a treasure planet world hopping pirate crew where they just <gasps> that'd be fucking awesome. throughout the universe. <laughs> that would be <laughs> that'd be so cool. Bringing oh, kindness awesome. and spores everywhere. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. the, oh, like, nope, I was going to spoil something. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> I know where you were going again. It's that one novella. But yeah, no, I, yeah. I feel you. Um, I, I know exactly what you're saying. But yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that it would be, it would be delightful to see more. I feel like the answer to the question of will we see a sequel in this realm, I think we might see one that involves the planet. I don't know that we'll see another Tress story to any degree. I, I assume that we're not done with Lumar as a world, but I assume that we are done with Tress. Unless she's maybe a footnote and other things and just mentioned, but yeah, maybe she becomes yeah, a fair. character. Like if, if somebody lands on this world and needs passage on a pirate ship and she's helming it, something like that. Or they, or they reference her like, like in Hero 2, when they referenced Ellen and Ben, you know, people reference Tress mm-hmm. as like just some mythological figure almost. Right, right. There, I, I realize so clearly that we've missed Huck almost entirely inside of this conversation. <laughs> and the whole like core of the story to some degree being the curses, the mythical rat can't, you know, talk and whatnot. But yeah, I want to, I want to talk about the curses. I want to talk about Huck. I want to talk about the central conceit of this, how somehow we've talked about everything else, but we haven't talked about the story itself, <laughs> like the primary leading force, which is these curses. It's Huck. It's love. Um, what do we think about the rat? When did you guys key into the rat being Charlie? I think when he started talking about his family, mm. it was pretty early on, but when he was kind of dodgy about it and he's like, I come from a, a family of talking or of people who can talk. It, that's where it yeah. started really kind of like, okay, there's something, something up here. And that's yeah. when I started to kind of have suspicions about it. I think for me, it was Hoyd says, Maybe the thing that she had been searching for the entire time was with her all along. And then I was like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're not talking about some internal growth. You're talking about that little mouse right there, aren't you? God. <laughs> God, you boy. All right. Little jerk. <laughs> what about you, Cross? I So we, we were running a thread on this inside of our Discord for patrons. And so I was kind of like live annotating my thoughts at I know that I, I sent the message at tap chapter 20 along the lines of like, if Huck is not Charlie, I will eat a hat. I believe is literally what I said. Cause I was just so on that train. I don't know where that is in, in relative relatively in the story comparatively now. Like I can't remember when that was, but I just remember being like, man, I love how tropey the story is. But if he's, if the rat isn't Charlie, I'm a, I'm a be a little concerned now. Did, did I, did I think that it was the curse? Did I have all the rest of the story worked out? Not at all, which is why it was still like a dream storytelling moment. And the way that that kind of flipped on its head being like the intent was to bring her there. And that was his part of the curse. And 
oh god heart-wrenching we have to force to bring that it's just damn yeah that was rough yeah i i started listening to this again yesterday um and upon like rereading it i don't know if you had have you read this multiple times peter i didn't have time yeah you have okay (laughs) So the point where Huck is introduced, where she's in that cellar or in the, in the, in the, uh, in the brig, essentially that to me upon rereading almost felt disingenuous. And I don't know if that's the right term to use, but um, it felt like there was so much misdirection happening and it wasn't on his part. It was, it felt like he was genuinely surprised that she wasn't actually an inspector or wasn't like on that ship on purpose to like catch them pirating. And it, it pretty quickly turns, but that first scene with him f- felt like he wasn't trying to, it felt like it wasn't Charlie, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. I think now that you say that, I, I hadn't really thought about that, but I wonder if, I mean, you know, it could be 10 different things, but I wonder if maybe not talking for, you know, a year or however long he'd been gone. Yeah, I think it'd been a year since she had received the cup. So like being a rat for almost a year, not talking and not, I mean, just being so caught off guard. Like imagine like the love of your life is just suddenly in prison next to you and you can't tell them that they're your loves. Like that would yeah. throw me that. I mean, in my head, it probably threw him off. But yeah, it was a little sketchy, very different from the Charlie for the rest of the book. Right. It, the the other side of that, I think, to me, in my impression, and again, I haven't gone back and reread it, but just with the context of the ending in mind, he's kind of pushing back against her in hostile, probably because he doesn't want to take her there. Like in the end, it's the curse that's kind of fueling him to be like, he doesn't need to be or represent that thing. And he's trying to like push against it maybe at first because he is so shocked that she's there. And it's like, no, 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 I can't imagine this being the the reality is that I have to take you. Oh, God. Like, yeah. Yeah. So I, I see it, I guess. But again, that's that's in concept, not in actuality, because I haven't reread it. So that's mm-hmm. just running on the curse concept. But what about Hoyd's curse and like the gamble there, basically? Oh, no, that's a spoiler. Hoyd, Hoyd is it the was- most spoilerific character that exists. So I understand. <laughs> I It was. It was cool to see Hoyd lose for her three quarters of a book because I'm used to him kind of being in someone in control most of the time. Mm-hmm. And so to see him not in control and for two years for, cause which that shocked me when Ulam was like, yeah, he's been like this for two years. I was like, Oh man, that is, that's a long time for our, for our boy Hoyd. Yeah. Uh, our boy Hoyd for sure. Um, and I, I love, I love, I love Hoyt. I love that bit of the story. And I love that this is finally him because if, if we recall, of course, at the end of Elantris with the prologue that was added at, at the anniversary point, this is him finally figuring out how to become an Elantrian basically through this bet, right? Like now he's got access to the Elantrian magic through this bet and he's been prevented from having that for theoretically so long in the story. That is so fascinating. Yeah. I mean, Based on like general Cosmere timeline and where we are now, at least a hundred years. No, it's got to be thousands. I think it's it got to be. It should be at least seven hundred years. Yeah, based on when stories happen. 
Mm-hmm. That's a long time, as a minimum amount of time to have not gotten that. And I like a lot of people like in uh, Reddits and discourse and stuff, a lot of training magic is generally the most powerful if you have mm-hmm. the knowledge and skill. But it's the hardest to learn out mm-hmm. of all the magics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because unlike everything else, which is very sort of tangible and physically interacts with things, it's a language. So there's a lot of complexity. I, I imagine similarly to the way that the curses function and other things like that, it is a series of symbols. So I imagine Elantrian magic closer to programming than most of the other magic systems, if that makes sense. Like that's where my brain goes with it. But um, how, how do we feel about also the resolution to this and the fight with the sorceress really coming from Hoyt as opposed to it being a confrontation with Tress? Were we good with that? It bothered me a little bit. Mm-hmm. But when then when Tress ordered Hoyd to do something, and he was, she was like, well, you're part of my crew, aren't you? And he was like, all right. Like that, <laughs> I was like, okay, that, but that's a little receptive. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it didn't bother me at first. Yeah. I can't imagine how Tress could have dealt with the sorceress on her own. Like that. I think it would have been spore driven if it were going to be anything. You're right. If anything, yeah. yeah. Would that have done anything, <laughs> though? You can get you can get ingenious with things, I suppose. But it's I'm, it's good. No, go for it. Oh, I was gonna say, I I think that like one of one of the tough the tough things with this is it's like what she could have done is probably restrict hands. Like I could imagine, like basically bind her up so that she couldn't draw the symbols to begin with. That was that was my thought is you know effectively the way that she's able to use some of these fours are similar to handcuffs she isn't quite that deft with them but we've seen her tie up characters before with well-timed you know crafted things so i kind of imagine that being the resolution as opposed to what we get in the form of the hoid fight yeah i i thought maybe she would use the midnight acer Mm. um i thought like I because like her work with the vines and like communicating with them, mm-hmm. part of me thought, oh okay, she's gonna get to the midnight sea, and the monsters are just gonna like bow to her whim because she's so like prepped and so like like her intent or connection or whatever is so much stronger than the sorceresses, and then immediately you know, she Horde was like she had two weeks of doing this and so nope, and I was like oh there's my. There's my prediction. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's that's totally fair. Um Yeah, and again, the story is like littered with a bunch of different connections too. We've we've mentioned and kind of skated around Ulam for a long time and I don't know why cuz comparatively, we know it's shit ton about Mistborn, PJ. We've been talking about it for over a year now. <laughs> and so true. I think it's great to have this Condra on on the boat and on the ship and in the crew. There's some interesting commentary around that, of course, and says it's also brought up, like we talked about earlier. So there's there's some comments there. But what do what do we think about Ulam? I know I just jumped from the conclusion of the book all the way back to like <laughs> the so doctor. But. The one thing that I picked up on on this sort of mostly read through Ulam mentions that so when when they're talking about the familiars, mm-hmm. and he says that his people are the source of those sort of myths on several other worlds. That's so interesting that you brought that up, PJ. Yeah. I don't, that's so I don't weird. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Crazy. Of, they've yeah. Been, I mean, I don't know if they have been established in stormlight. I'm not going to ask you guys to answer or not, but uh, at the very that's least good. it's been a long time. 
that since they've been allowed to leave Scadrial, so it's possible that they've taken root and uh, gained sort of mythological origins on other worlds as well. But yeah, that's that's what I have to say about that. Because <laughs> I don't, you know, know. With, without diving into the spoiler side of of that side of the conversation, I think we can point to. Uh, the Lost Metal and Milan basically taking a quest from Seiza to go in World Hot, and this mm-hmm. idea that maybe there's a lot more out there that have been doing exactly what you're saying. Right. It does seem to point in that direction. Yeah, and it's, I mean, because it says, he says, like, since Seiza released them, mm-hmm. right? right. That, like Because he's, he's not pretending to be a human. He's just a Chandra. He is just, like, an oozy, goopy, growing extra body parts kind of guy. Yeah whose heart isn't beating and his skin is cold, which is so different from where we leave off in the lost metal. So I, I want to know about that. Yeah. I, I do want to clarify. He doesn't say says release them. That is Hoyd that says that says it released right. them. But yeah, the, the, we're in Ulam in the scene and like, that's all, you know, they're in the same room and whatnot. And there is this sort of meta textual question. This is the only thing that I talked to PJ about really with this book beforehand too much. But there's this context of says releasing them. Do we think that that is later in the eras or do we feel like that's just the freedom that was given after says became harmony? Like there's there's some interesting there's a question there, I guess. Because they had choices. They had choices to like end their own lives now. They could naturally decline versus like having full control. I assumed so, it was talking about especially. the point where Ulam leaves, which is before the Lost Metal, I think. At least they talk about um, it within, within the Lost Metal, having him having already left. Yeah, that he was on a mission or that he was a mentor, I think, is the context there. I double checked this before, but. Do, do I love having a Kindle that I can search on? Like chapter 10. It is very early on. So it is Milan. And what she says is just not what it was to you. I know that I should have expected that. Tensoon warned me. Ulam warned me. Mortals see time differently. Um, so I, it's not necessarily yeah. a like a full on. We don't know what where Ulam is inserted in the spectrum of things. But we do know he's out there. Or that he That's exists. what I was looking for. Yeah. Just looking it up, I was like, I know he's mentioned somewhere. I'm gonna double check fans too, real quick. Yeah, he's not. I thought it mentioned him leaving at some point, but I think she just it doesn't she mention Ulam going off on a mission when she does? Am I wrong? Oh, that could be. I so like, I think she says something like those before that went, so like there's an assumption there, but the only time that Ulam is brought up in all four books of Era 2 is that in that one sentence. Sneaky, Brandon. Yeah, sneaky, sneaky. Just laying just enough. But but it is kind of hinted at, of course, and I think that this story maybe confirms that. I think that it's a stretch in that direction of like he's probably a mentor or a close family member in some degree to her, and yeah, that's kind of kind of how I picture it, but but they, uh, yeah. the line that Hoyd says, I swear they've all been getting weirder ever since Says had released them. That's that's where it gets dicey, and I'm not sure if this is something that's extra textual, something that maybe happens between eras, era three. I don't know. I don't know. So we were still talking about Ulam. I had to do a quick mic swap that happens from time to time when things go wrong. But we want, we were talking a little bit more about Ulam and just sort of the context of the story. You know, where where exactly they land with Sazed and sort of the disconnect there, maybe between eras or what this what this all looks like. So just wanted to open that that back up with thoughts. 
on our Conjure um, Boy. Should I should I go with Fire Away? All right. Um, there is a commentary in Bands of Morning or The Lost Metal, whatever it is. I think I think Bands of Morning is what we landed on, where Warren talks about their own faceless immortals and them being them notably having red eyes, which is how Ulam is described, but they're not glowing. So do we think this is the same type of Chandra that we're used to, or is there a possibility that this is whatever that sort of creature that Edwarn was discussing I, could be? Something that does seem awe, kind that I think could line up with that, is that Ulam seems to accidentally do things mm. that we haven't seen Chandra accidentally do. Like he grows an extra pinky and then he says, Oh, that's interesting. Like he hmm. didn't do it on purpose, which is not something we've seen a Chandra do. So I am curious if like he's different in some way and the connection to red eyes, they're not glowing, but it does. I mean, we do know as, as across, as you said, during the break, he does steal eyes mm-hmm. and so, or take eyes from people. That's so true. that is maybe they're just someone else's eyes, but I don't know. The more I think about it, PJ, the more I'm like, oh, there's yeah, also there's, there's one other question there. There's one other yeah. difference that has, he has one contemporary in it and that is Paul, but he only has one capital letter in his name. Mm. Unlike almost all other Contra. Hmm. Interesting. Wow. Is that some? Oh, this is this is more of a general general thing, right? I I wonder if that is intentional in the way that you're assuming it is, right? In in the <laughs> fact that like it means that there is maybe down down a spike or something like that, like the capitals are for each spike or something. That right? Maybe I guess. Interesting. Fascinating. Very weird meta text to put on that though, because they're referring to Paul this whole time. Like both of these cases that we're talking about are double A's, so that's also right. I mean, it's a it's a big question. I just don't know. I don't know that we'll have an answer for a long time, if at all. I haven't I haven't looked at this, but I'm wondering if the naming conventions for the generations of Kondra are different. Ooh. And I wonder if Ulam and Paom, like. Are they from the same generation or is Ulam from like the sixth or something? And so the naming type is different. So I'm curious about that. I think we know Paalm is seventh. I feel like that's right. That's right. I, I feel like I remember that. No, pa- she's Paalm. She's the she's the first because she's the Lord Ruler's. Oh, really? I think hand. she's okay. a third. I think she's yeah. Third? She's of the third generation. Okay. Which is yeah. the same as Tensoon. Okay. Yes. And or Paalm, Tensoon, Ulam. But no, no double capital. Interesting. Yeah. It's these tiny things. I did love, this is something we haven't said yet. Yeah. I did love how Brandon used Hoyd to make fun of his fans. Oh a little my bit gosh. Like, <laughs> for those of you who are wondering, it's iron. Like, for those of you caring about weather patterns, it's this. Please get a, get a different interest. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The, the um, shade thrown at meteorologists in general. Oh, that was so funny. <laughs> I love our Discord chart, when and anytime anyone arrives to that line, our Discord, they would just post a picture of it and be like, I feel personally attacked. <laughs> and I just loved it. 
I totally feel that. Like I, I loved, I also loved that. And I like, I remember I took some notes down as I was reading, not like a whole ton, but I was just like, here are some things. And it's in chapter 35 or chapter. Yeah. 35 that it happens. And Crow has this whole wonderful speech about like a life not lived. And that kind of gives us this idea of her motivation before we really see that she is this corrupted form and why she's doing all of this and that's it's just a wonderful wonderful moment but then shortly thereafter is the the moment with hoyd and for me it is simultaneously like the like most aware that sanderson is of what he's done and created and like the monsters that he's birthed and it feels like the least aware where he's like reaching like there's there's some like interesting balancing act of like i know you're all nerds and you're acknowledging the fact that they're all nerds so the fact that you're acknowledging it is also its own you know, ah, <laughs> it's, it's a nice little bitter taste of irony, I think. What's great is the rest of us can be like, hey, you're the one that made this. Right, you, exactly. You are the one that did two years of world building before even writing a book. Yeah. Like, come on. Exactly. Exactly. So that's that's where my brain went with it, for the record, was like, it is it is simultaneously like poking fun at those of us of whom are obsessing over these details. At the same time, if you didn't obsessively put the details in, we wouldn't obsess over them to the degree right. that we do. <laughs> so, you know, if you didn't do this, we wouldn't do it. So, yeah. And it was it was also a clever way to include the information for us, because I'm sure there were people who were like, what is that? What? What is that metal? I'm, I need to know. And then he says it, you know, without it having to be an in-world conversation that Tress has. So it doesn't feel like as much of a lore dump, but it feels it hit the lands of the joke. That's also a lore dump, which is clever. That's also mm-hmm. just a benefit of the storytelling vehicle of Hoyd throughout the story is that any of the moments that feel like lore dumps aren't because it feels like you're being told the story as opposed to being told the story by some off-screen non-existent narrator and the head of a pov character as previous so like it works brilliantly in part because of the their narration and giving this from Hoyt's perspective one character's journalistic in breakdowns in a book of stormlight for instance by comparison of which feels very info dumpy versus yeah so yeah i agree anyway <laughs> as a comparison point yeah i oh god so so good you had something that you wanted to bring up peter in relation yeah to another curiosity in the story yeah so there, for me there's really like three things in this story that are kind of like the whole cosmere effective one is the aethers mm-hmm. two is the release of the chondra by Sazed, and three is from chapter 61 and i'll just read it here the fake charlie had walked up to the doorway and the light weaving had fallen away revealing a creature that only resembled a human reptilian with golden eyes and a toothy grin we have no idea what that is like we have zero zero knowledge of any sort of reptilian humanoid in this universe for it so for it to be dropped in like the middle of a high pressure situation where you could easily flip past that and like just scan and miss it but as i've i had two people in our discord chat myth that entire moment i and I, I reached out to one of the Reddit mods, Joff Wu, and I was like, do you have any idea? And he was like, I have zero. I have no clue what this is. Um, and so that for me is like, that's like the tidbit that like now, like, okay, this is going to come up in another world and it'll be a throwback to Tress seven books from now when we learn about the <laughs> reptilian people. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. I, I just kind of, 
assumed that it was one of the midnight ether creatures or something like that. Like I hadn't. It's closer to like warging. You know what I mean? Like it's it's very similar in most fantasy contexts to like going into another spirit, like interchange or like another body, basically, and and living through them. So I don't feel like she could probably balance both of those. So I think I'm with you on the idea of this being just something else. And I think the the golden eyes and a toothy grin. It just gives me this idea um, that if Rena picked it up somewhere along the lines and like has this this thing around. Are there more of them? Is there something else? Where do they come from? So uh, I just thought. looked up on the Copper Mind. So we, we know several dragons in the Cosmere. In each instance of dragon, they have the ability to give boons. So that seems like a type of magic they have. And we right. learned that from Dixis. But they can also shapeshift into people, hmm. which is something I wasn't certain of. But that's what the copper mine said. So I'm wondering if that dragon person is like a half dragon. Or a dragon person. form or a human form of Dra- dragon. Yeah, a dragonborn from D&D. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Sorry. I totally spaced out while you were talking. I'm very sorry. I no, I mean, my brain. There's, there's a lot of speculation right around this. And I, I wonder if it is to me. I think I like the mystery of that not being the solution, although it could be, if that makes sense. Like that's that's where my line feels pulled from. I, I have to think in in my head, or at the very least, the way that I picture this, I feel like this is going, especially the way that this character is depicted. I think it's going to be a character that Dan Wells is going to end up writing. It's going to be from something mm-hmm. else adjacent, something horror driven. You'd have a reptilian species on a planet, perhaps. Yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm into it. Mm-hmm. I know this is this is way off topic, but you you mentioned Dan Wells and horror writing, yep. so I, I want to know like what is a story you're hoping to hear from Dan Wells in a Cosmere with his that's, ability to write horror? That's great. So I know that PJ hasn't read. I gave PJ the open berth to read all of the novellas before we read the Lost Metal. I was like, read whatever you'd like. He read none of them. <laughs> none of the none of the ones that we hadn't read yet. So I feel like the the answer that I would give is the something related to like Sixth of Dusk esque or like that in earlier time frame on that world. And I also want. I kind of get the feeling. That we're also just going to see this as a palette for new worlds. Um, but yeah, because I, I think that Brandon's going to like kind of retain most of his prime worlds that are there, of course. I mean, Mistborn, he said that he's, he'll give Isaac Stewart a story when he's good, good for it, or when he wants, you know, to have like a side novel or stuff like that. But yeah, I, I don't know. The type of story that I want to see is definitely more more grounded stories like this that aren't the end of the world all the time and more like solo focused and i think that's what horror is so good at capturing is like the Mm -hmm. the sort of moments with one person and like or a couple a small group of people and so i think that dan wells's stories will be smaller in scope higher in personal stakes that's kind of what i expect i don't know worlds i I can't think of outside of six of dusk i can't think of another oh i hell secrets in the shadows for silence yeah yeah also that one yeah those are the two yeah i yeah, I just, uh, I'm, I'm kind of like, I've read his, his, I'm not a serial killer. And then the second one as well, which I really enjoyed, but full disclosure, if they gave me nightmares, oh, I'd stop <laughs> reading them. But I would love, because I know a lot of people are kind of bummed about the end of Wax and Wayne because the characters are so lovable. 
And part of me hopes that we get like a story of wax and Wayne in the rucks mm-hmm. written by Dan Wells, where they're going after like the horrific evil people that yeah. Dan Wells could write so well, which I think that would be, that would be cool. Yeah. Some filler stories I think are great. And I also think that's the benefit of like Isaac Stewart stepping in as well for some of yeah. those too. When, when eventually that happens is that I think that playing with those characters and tones in different ways will be very very interesting and they're kind of the ones that i think will fill in the fun sections while brandon takes care of the really big um expansive stories and that'll make it feel to me like more of a universe which i think is also the the void to pull it back because that's what i'm doing now that's the void that like this story fills right is this is a small personal story and that's why it rules and that's why it's so good is it's not the end of the world it's it's just a tale of love it's a princess bride but on a crazy cool planet with hexagonal seas and that's great and and then i love the ending i love that the ending is she saves her town from poverty and she sails the seas with her crew and her love and that they just kind of keep going and i just i just every cosmere novel has some sort of ending that is like oh my god that's stressful. Now I have to read the next one. And this one is like, here's a nice bow. Everything's done. And for those of you that need little tidbits, this ancient sorceress flies off in a rocket ship and there's a reptilian person. Mm-hmm. Everything else tied up in a bow. And I love okay. that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It makes it enjoyable on its own. On its own merit, too, I think is the other part of that. Like a lot of a lot of the Cosmere can just feel like it just spans forever. And like we're waiting for some kind of a resolution on a lot of things and we won't have one in some cases for a very long time so it's just you know it's it's nice to have some catharsis of an actual ending which is why i kind of hope that there isn't a sequel that focuses on tress i hope Mm -hmm. that it's just this isolated thing but more of the store like more of lumar you know i'm i'm down for i like that that's actually a really good point and i i like that yeah Mm -hmm. pj thoughts i think I'm in agreement with you. I love I love this planet. I love everything that's been outlined for it. There there's something to be said about a a small story. Mm-hmm. One that doesn't have yeah. dire world-ending consequences. One that's enjoyable in its own right and doesn't need to be bleeding out into the rest of the cosmere doesn't have yeah. to have the ripple effects mm-hmm. but you still get the which benefit is, of all the extra information that's being used within that story which is interesting because that's what he was originally writing talked about in the elantris forward maybe or maybe an episode of writing excuses how he used to just write stories that were just human stories in magical places and then he had a publisher or a friend say the world needs to be in peril, Brandon. You can't write fantasy stories without the world being in peril. And then he did in this one, finally, after like 20 years of publishing fantasy books, he writes a book where the world is not in peril. Someone is just in love and they have to save their love. And I love that. I love yeah. that for Brandon, that he got to do something he's been trying to do since he started writing. And I love that it does just encapsulate. It's a whole story on its own. And I love that. Yeah, yeah. So I completely agree with you guys. You you swayed me. I don't need a sequel. It's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> we swung it at the last minute. That's that's our job. That's our gig. Well, sweet. I think that's a great place to end. Unless you have anything else, Peter, to pend. Of course, if there's anything else in your plate. 
God, I I love this. I love this book. I and I think that's my net, right? I I when I read it, I was like, this is a nine point five out of ten. And by the conclusion, it was like, okay, it's an eight point five. It was really good. Cup like the tech bungled me a little bit, but man, it's still a delightful story and an easy, easy top five. I think Sanderson Reed definitely where I'd recommend everyone start. I think that this is like my new recommended starting point to some degree for a lot of new readers, young readers. Which is my, weird because it's all in the time. Yeah. Later, but <laughs> my mom is 67 and is halfway through this book. And it's her first cosmic book. And so I'm excited to kind of see what she says because I think it's going to be my, yeah, start here. Mm-hmm. Start with this one before going to the rest of the cosmic. Yeah. Once I get my yeah. physical copy, I'm giving it immediately to my fiance. To read, <laughs> so. Love it. I love that the main characters are in love with each other. That's one of the most adorable puns. Written. Yeah. And it feels, I, I know that we were like, oh, we'll end, but it, I, I'm so with you on that. Like, because it does actually feel like a real love. And it's not that like Ellen and Vin, for instance, don't at any point, but it just, it is so much more personal, low standard. The writing, because of being told from Hoyt's perspective, has this romanticism to it all. Oh, mm, adorable. 100%. Yeah. It's an adorable little book. I love it. Well, cool. Thank you again so much, Peter, for coming on to the show and doing yeah, this. Can people find you on the internet as we did before we met? <laughs> uh, I'm on TikTok and Instagram. Sometimes I go on Reddit. On Reddit, my username is Praying for Superpower. It was my podcast from like mm. five years ago. So I have a few old YouTube videos up. Um, I haven't made anything new in quite some time. But my new stuff and a lot of Cosmere memes you can find on TikTok at Cosmere Considered. Sweet. Awesome. Yeah. I highly recommend, obviously. We're so, so glad to have you on the show. Yeah. Hell yeah. Yeah. We'll, I was we'll glad do to another join one you guys. for sure. Yeah. Hey, I would love if you want to bring me back for each of the secret projects. I'd love that. <laughs> I, I'm very, very excited to do more of these. And I think that I think that there's another another one down the road for sure. And, you know, we originally before thinking and realizing that we were going to need someone on for a secret project, we were going to do the Emperor's Soul. So perhaps we do that sooner than later so um the emperor's soul is is my uh it's my go-to when i say like when someone says what's your what's your favorite i usually say the emperor's soul so i would love to come in for that yeah it's short it's good it's punchy i love it cool all right well thanks again for coming onto the show and thank you all so much for listening to our show be sure to check us out on instagram reddit twitter where wherever you can join our patreon patreon.com slash words and whiskey we're at words whiskey pod on most things words and whiskey show at gmail.com if you've got any spicy takes or or just messages for us yeah that that's where you can find us as mentioned uh, instagram tiktok for peter and cosmere considered and uh, next month i think we're talking about the thief of always is that correct yes next month we're going to be talking about clive barker's the thief of always of which is my favorite book of all time. So I'm Ooh. a little, I'm, I'm freaking out a little bit about just the concept of covering it. For Tear those it of whom are unaware, because it is not an overly popular book, it is a fable. It is a, a sort of kid's fable. It's very approachable. It's got just enough horror in it to be really fascinating and really great, but not too much to be too scary for children. And so it is It is my favorite story. Um, I have a lot more to say, but I don't want to color it too much for PJ. And I'm very excited to talk about it. I think we're literally doing that 
this weekend on Sunday. So, but yeah, very, very excited. Coming out on my birthday. So February 15th is a little, little birthday present to me. <laughs> Happy birthday. So yeah, as PJ had mentioned, you can find us at all those places and we'll see you next month. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Bye.